The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. This week, I hopped around the globe to speak to a few of our columnists about some of the stories that have been lighting up your inboxes. First, I chatted with Pete Sweeney in Hong Kong to get his take on the new security law that China has rammed through the former British colony. In a nutshell, it ain't looking good over there. Then I spoke to Liam Proud in London about the unfolding scandal around German payments provider Wirecard, also not good, particularly what this whole fiasco has revealed about the country's regulatory apparatus. Last but not least, I called Anthony Curry in New York for his take on Tesla becoming the world's most valuable car company. Give it a listen. Pete, good to speak to you. I uh, wanted to really get your thoughts on this new security law that's come down in Hong Kong. It's got a lot of people quite concerned. Uh, maybe you can kind of drill through some of the main questions or issues that I think people, you know, global business travelers or finance people might in particular find quite problematic with what's come out of it. Sure, Rob. Well, first, I don't think anybody was expecting this law to be soft and, and the way that it was rammed through in Beijing going around the local legislature had already, already raised some eyebrows. But the actual text itself is, is also alarming to some. One of the major surprises in it that I think people did not expect is an extraterritorial clause by which this law is in Hong Kong is seen as applying to non-residents outside of China. So the language is pretty vague. Most of the analysts believe this was first target, enforcement-wise, Chinese diaspora, people who've dissidents, whatever, who have left Hong Kong, given up their citizenship or whatever, and continue to criticize China from outside. This law waives that exemption so they can be arrested Put that into into sure. a scenario. Give me an idea. What would that mean? Would that mean that, say, someone who is critical of the Chinese government in their in an analyst report or even a journalist in Singapore, the consequences would be what? Well, you can be jailed for life if you uh, meet the the maximum requirement. You can be extradited. You can land in Hong Kong, be taken off a plane, um, extradited to Beijing, and tried under by a security court. It may not be public. And keeping in mind that the law itself doesn't limit this, it doesn't say it's limited to Chinese ethnic people. It just says non-residents. So in theory, Kyle Bass, you know, anybody outside the of China, in Texas the hedge fund manager, sorry, right. Um, one, any of these guys, uh, Jim Chanos, who have been negative or, or done, done something that the Chinese government would define as, you know, subverting or undermining our power, you know, could be charged this way, um, which is very wide. Would it go down to like the research note level? I mean, probably not, but it will intimidate research notes. I mean, China's definitely thrown temper tantrums about research notes before, and including, you know, they got very mad at Moody's for, for a negative report on Hong Kong um, and on China. So, I mean, it, it's intimidating for them. Would this law be applied to them? I don't know. But I mean, the language is so vague, and that's what's got everybody really worried. Right. And so so what is this the response from, I mean, I don't know, like American or European businesses. I mean, they've all used Hong Kong as their base. Certainly in the financial industry, our core audience and readership, this has got to be getting all of their lawyers into a tizzy. Yeah, it's anxiety making. I have friends who are lawyers and this is what they're doing all day this week. Every hour is, is going through the ramifications. But really, everybody has to kind of guess because it's going to come down to how it's enforced. 
The law in theory allows this vast scope for applying pressure to nearly everybody who is critical of the CCP, but you know it's probably not going to get enforced that way in the first way. And you know, for a lot of the banks here, Citibank, Goldman Sachs, they're they've been navigating, you know, Harry Waters and other authoritarian states. Um, they're not in the business of going out and making political statements about the Chinese government in the first place. So they will probably bet that they can carry on with it. I think for the business community, the main issue is like, will this measure work? and make sure that people are still making money in Hong Kong, or will we end up with this very nasty kind of internal subversive civil struggle with U.S. sanctions and maybe sanctions from other countries, you know, hitting like the banking sector and stuff, which will mean that we end up making less money here. And I think that is really a bigger concern. Um, you know, obviously these guys operate in Beijing and mainland China, most of them at least, um, and they're used to that law. But the question is, how does it play out in Hong Kong itself, which is kind of in a very different situation from, say, Shanghai, you know, where there is no independence movement, there's not a bunch of, you know, riots and demonstrations. Um, so how the crackdown is managed and how it hits the economy and the stock markets here, I think is a primary concern for business people. I mean, it seems like it's, you make the place less free, you take away one of the sort of real key elements of Hong Kong, which has been the basic law or the, the rule of law, as it were. And now you potentially make it a less prosperous place. Yes, and it's important to add that China is is setting up separate legal law enforcement institutions inside Hong Kong, which will not be subject to Hong Kong court jurisdiction. And that's a huge change, right? And so even if you assume that, like, say, the central government wants to have a very limited application of this, that they're only going to target, you know, the most extreme elements of the demonstration movement that are calling for separatism, calling for the overthrow of the government, even if you believe that, I mean, there's going to be a lot of police officers here running around with a very wide remit to go after dissent. And um, we've seen this in other environments where, you know, this gets can get out of control. People can start informing on their neighbors saying this person said something that, that advocated for the overthrow of, of the government or whatever. Um, it can get very, very ugly very quickly. And it's going to get very confusing as to who's in charge of enforcing what. Well, what's the, I mean, I guess sort of what comes down to that, will they just learn to live with it? The big, you know, global multinationals, finance companies, will they just sort of say, all right, we're going to, because it's not like, as you say, you can't just go to mainland China, really. You can't really do this business in, I don't know if could you do it in Singapore, maybe some of it. You can't do it all in Sydney or Tokyo. What's the... Well, yeah, and not to mention the tax rates, right? I mean, a lot of these people that relocate, you know, if you go to Taipei or, or Tokyo, you know, or, or Australia, your pay package is going to take a bit of a, of a hit. It's all those French bankers. It's all the French Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I think a lot of those people, like the finance industry, they're focused on, on the mainland. They're used to operating in the mainland environment. They have every reason to stay, and they probably will. On the margins, other industries, you know, including the media industry, might have cause to rethink their location here. What's um, your you know, sense, Pete? I mean, you as an American journalist there, what's your what's your personal view about this? Well, I'm on kind of two ends of it, right? Because the, the United States, I mean, keeping in mind, and this is the big qualifier, there's there's a lot of these banks are also regulated by the U.S. government, which is has a response underway. And I'm an American. So all the American institutions and people here are also caught in the middle of the conflict between Washington and Beijing, right? So, I mean, for example, Beijing and D.C. are busy kind of like hitting each other's uh, journalist visa right. policies, right? Right, that's been going right. on. Right, so China, China just banned a bunch of... Um, journalists who were working in the mainland booted them out of China and also booted them out of Hong Kong, which was another first. So, I mean, it's it's a, it's, it's a particularly anxious time for the media. You have to be careful who you 
talk to. I mean, because like there's this whole foreign collusion clause in the law. Um, China is very, very anxious to kind of target links between, you know, the local protest movement and any foreign entity, be it an embassy or, or a news agency. So all the reporters in Scotland are, are kind of in the spotlight now and I think have reason to be concerned. I mean, certainly the Americans the worst because, you know, you have you have your own government doing stuff to go against China and then you have China retaliating against that and you are definitely caught in the middle. So I can't say I'm feeling blasé about this this law on a personal level. All right. Well, stay safe and keep trying to unpack what's going on there. We appreciate it, Pete. Thanks, Rob. So Liam, you've been pretty busy writing about Wirecard, this German fintech that seems to be basically collapsed, has been a huge embarrassment for Germany, for German finance, um, and is, of course, a, a fantastic tale of, it looks to be at the moment, of fraud and uh, all sorts of other things. But what, what's, what's the state of play here with Wirecard now? So the state of play is, um, you know, Wirecard was this German payments company basically hooks up, you know, every time you use your card, it goes through a series of intermediaries. Um, they're one of those intermediaries. It filed for insolvency after saying that about a quarter of its balance sheet might actually be fake. Um, yeah, oops, <laughs> 1.9 billion euros. Um, and it's now in a kind of tense, long-running negotiation with its creditors, who are a bunch of banks like Commerzbank, ING, ABN AMRO, a few Chinese banks. Um, they're trying to work out whether it's best to just let the company keep running for a while, try and use some of that cash flow to pay back the creditors, um, or whether they should just liquidate the thing. Um, I mean, we've written that if you liquidate the thing, there's not very much there, especially since one quarter of the balance sheet isn't real. So um, they'll probably try and keep it running. Um, but that's about where we are right now. But that's so we've got Wirecard and we've got its, you know, founder who's, you know, Marcus Brown. Right. Um, we have, you know, the, the creditors or I should say the banks that have helped them. And of course, shareholders who've been effectively wiped out of, of a, you know, billions and billions of, of market value. But I kind of think it's really interesting the way you're exploring uh, the story further now. I mean, we've we've. Uh, our, our colleague Amy Donlan write, wrote about, and Edward Haddis wrote about the the auditors. Mm. So it is quite fascinating. That, you know, how is it that you have you have two billion dollars effectively in a bank account that um, you don't actually have? In that yeah. bank? I mean, how is it possible that auditors, in this case, who was it? It was EY. EY signed EY, off yeah. on the accounts. I mean, that's got to be absolutely embarrassing. It's, it's hugely embarrassing for EY. I mean, it's also worth pointing out that they are the same auditor um, that was on NMC Health, which was a London-listed um, company, which has also had some accounting problems. So it's huge for them. In terms of how is it possible, it's really, really hard to tell at the moment. I mean, it looks like it's just a very... The phrase that EY uses is deliberate and sophisticated fraud, which is obviously trying to pass some of the buck off themselves. But um, there's there's gonna there's gonna be some some hell to pay from from the auditor's point of view. One suggestion is that um, you should beef up the supervision of auditors in Germany. So at the moment, it's done by a pretty piddling organisation that's got a budget of about five million euros or so. So they might hand those powers to BaFin, which is the main financial regulator. Well, um, that's but that raises this other question. So yeah. we'll get to that in a second. But but the the auditors, you know, have have, have obviously. Drop the ball somewhere along the way. Now, if someone is going to defraud you, 
and they are sophisticated people like your pal Marcus, then it's possible that they'll, they'll get away with that fraud for a period of time. But there, there is a sort of question when you have two billion, at some point you wonder why they, the auditors didn't just say, show me the money. You yeah. know? It's a little, it's, it's, it's a strange one because the two, so it's, it's got to do with the strange way that payments companies work. So it takes money from the shopper um, and kind of holds it before it goes into the merchant's bank account and it keeps it in these like escrow accounts. Um, and Wirecard had always made this slightly dicey claim that this money in escrow accounts, some of which was his, some of which was owned by the company, some of which was ultimately customers' money. They'd always made this really aggressive claim, which the auditors went along with, that that was actually cash, that was their cash, that counted as cash on their balance sheet. Um, even though really it's kind of a mix of claims in those big accounts, and that, that money was always kept in um, Asian bank accounts, which was a bit odd because, you know, there's, there's a big Asian... Yeah, I mean, eventually in the Philippines, before that they were in Singapore. I mean, it was it was always strange. Um, and I agree, it's kind of crazy that EY didn't, you know, do more to make sure it actually existed. It's quite fundamental. Now, it's, which, but the other, the, the most embarrassing, the, the most embarrassed red-faced uh, actor in some ways has to be, as you say, Baffin, the, the yeah. German financial regulator. And, and uh, you know, they have got, uh, they've got some real explaining to do, don't they? Yeah, they do. So, I mean, the, the president of Baffin, which is, you know, primarily a, a banking supervisor, um, but it also has broader powers for market integrity and, and all this other stuff. The president of Baffin has, you know, called this a complete disaster and has accepted some kind of small amount of culpability. Um, but it's, I mean, I think it's going to be hard for him to stay in his position for a while. Um, his name is Felix Hufeld. And, and he went, I mean, spoke He spoke to uh, to members of parliament. or uh, He right? did on Wednesday, yeah. I mean, his kind of defense is that, look, this was a, basically a technology and a payments company. It's not a bank. Like, you know, this was, you know, a, a normal uh, financial company. Barfin would have presumably been all over it. But they say, we don't really regulate the payments company. It's not really a very good defense. You know, Wirecard owned a bank, so that gives you pretext. For yeah. Well, that's the other thing. I mean, they owned a bank, so they certainly yeah. fell within their jurisdiction. I mean, it reminds me, as you and I have been talking about, that the Office of Thrift Supervision back in the before yeah. in the crisis, you know, which was, which in, in many cases called its re- regulated entities, it called them clients, and it was, you know, bending over backwards. They were known to be the soft guys, and they, and so people like, AIG bought a bank and they used that bank uh, effectively to do all of their uh, dodgy credit default swap business. But what strikes me as interesting is there is this backstory here where um, the FT and some short sellers had gone after almost two years ago a wire card. And instead of investigating their claims properly, what did they do? They... (laughs) Instead of investigating the company that's now turned out to be a massive fraud, they investigated the two journalists whose bylines were on the stories and um, investigated the short sellers um, in case there was some kind of market manipulation. And they banned short selling in the company, which is quite quite an astonishing action when you consider that um, now there's been about 20 billion euros of equity value wiped out. Um, so yeah, that's 20 look, billion that they could have accrued to the uh, exactly. short sellers whose money they manage from the German, you know, pensioners. Yeah. Talk about, um, yeah, it's, I mean, if you talk about market integrity, which they do, then it's kind of, you can't get much worse than that. You know, not only did they not investigate quite clearly suspicious kind of fishy things, they actually 
actively investigated the people who were trying to uncover the suspicious things. Um, so it's re really hard to see how the person who was in charge of that culture, in charge of that organisation, can now take the organisation forward. I mean, it needs some quite major reform. So um, you're looking for a Felixit. Felix exit. <laughs> who felt exit? I don't know. We need to do some work on the exit. Okay. Yeah. Well, it sounds. I mean, given given the way that that uh, some some of those uh, parliamentarians in Germany were speaking about yeah. last week, it sounds like it's an all but uh, a certain outcome here. I think it's quite likely now. Um, but uh, yeah, who the next person will be remains to be seen. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks very much, Liam. Uh, this fascinating story. Uh, keep up the good work. Cheers, Rob. Bye. Greetings, Anthony. How you doing? How's everything yeah. in Brooklyn? Uh, you know, it's, it's it's just fantastic. You know, we are at least uh, near uh, the river and the park to take the kids out. But other than that, it's it's business uh, in lockdown as usual. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we passed a milestone that I want to talk to you about. One was that uh, Tesla surpassed in market value that of Toyota Motor, which is pretty extraordinary. I remember the days when you and I were touting up all the market caps of all the companies combined that would still not equal Toyota Motor. Remember that? Yeah, that was that was back in the, the wonderful days of what, 2000 and... Well, it must have been when the US companies were going bust and the, yeah. everyone else. And, I, I, you know, it's extraordinary how that their market cap equaled um, all of them combined. But now here we have Tesla, um, you know, in, on, a, on a manufacturing production nowhere near the size or the scale of Toyota. And how, so what to explain this? I mean, not that you can, anyone can explain the valuation, but... You could explain what people what the, the bull case is for this. Yes, yeah, ab absolutely. So I mean, but yeah, look at it now. So it passed, uh, it closed yesterday about 207 billion, so just ahead of Toyota. And it's the I think the only one that ever got close to Toyota in recent history is is Volkswagen, and that was largely due to the the, the whole sort of Porsche issues again over a decade ago. So it wasn't particularly. Yeah, and that was like a crazy reality. short squeeze, if I'm not exactly. Yeah. yeah. But now you've got you've also uh, we just had on uh, Thursday morning some some surprisingly good uh, sales numbers from Tesla. So sales compared to last year were only down about five percent, whereas they're down like thirty three percent of Ford for the second quarter, um, and that's shot it up another twenty billion, give or take. So it's now you know just you know powering ahead, zooming ahead of of Toyota. And look, there there are a couple of things in this, right? Um, firstly. You could say it's all about Elon Musk. People, a lot of investors are really keen on Elon Musk. Uh, they see what he's done. And look, you, you cannot, you may not like him. You may not uh, think that his products are as good as some think they are. There's certainly been a lot of quality control issues. There are hedge funds out there who are convinced there's some kind of weird financial shenanigans going on, um, none of which has come to light yet, but they're convinced. Um, but look, he, he has created or helped to create, because he wasn't the initial founder, but he helped to create and then definitely turned this company into a major force for change in the industry, right? Mm -hmm. And yes, he's, they only sold 370,000 cars last year compared to what, you know, you're looking at, um, you know, uh, multiples of that, 10, 20 times that, depending on the size of the company you're looking at in the traditional space. But they're all electric. Uh, they look pretty snazzy to a lot of people. Um, yes, well, there's been some... either the market's giving him the benefit of being the the presumptive disruptor, no doubt. But That's isn't right. it, there's also a personal element here? I mean, you wrote about this 
you know, Elon and the board had basically given him this extraordinary incentive structure that was based around a number of metrics, including market cap. But where does that stand, and what's where does it where's what's the goal for him again? Well, the goal overall is that over a a ten year period, there are twelve uh, different metrics he can hit, which would, if he surpasses all of them, land him what at the time in 2018 was worth $60 billion of stock um, and about 12% of the outstanding shares based on 2018, which will be adjusted. Of course, they've issued more stock, so they'll adjust it for that. Um, and at the moment, he, he just over a month ago, end of May, they uh, said, right, you've hit the first milestone, which is 100 billion market cap over a six month average uh, and uh, and a revenue of 20 billion. There's also an EBITDA number in there, which I think they also hit. But they hadn't actually registered it properly at the board level. So where we're at now is actually he's already within that one month period actually even before that he's they've already zoomed past the 150 billion uh, market cap target which is the next one they're now past 200 billion again both of these have to go over a six month average and then they also have to hit higher numbers on revenue and EBITDA which are probably further out and as of as of Wednesday uh, so before the sales numbers came out um, it was not looking too great for Tesla to hit some of those um, those earnings numbers this year, purely because everyone assumes that you know, car sales have been terrible this year and uh, this quarter, um, and ever since COVID came in. And guess what? Tesla's come up with 90,000 cars delivered, which is just 5 million, uh, 5,000 below what it sold in the second quarter last year. I mean, it ain't bad, right? So this all adds to the the idea that you know Musk gets through it. Now, one of the reasons I think why he's selling those cars is because they don't have to rely on a dealer network, which really helps when you don't have to have physical contact. Still doesn't explain um, the the metrics behind it, right? So yes, he's he's going to have quite possibly a bumper payday uh, again in the next few months. Um, I think we'll probably have to wait until the end of the year to see on the on the on the earnings metrics, not just the market cap. But the market cap just looks bizarre. It's now trading. Yeah. Over yeah. 70 times 2022 earnings. Yeah, don't, don't, you're, using, you're using those traditional metrics, Anthony. I'm such a I'm such a, a man of the 19. Well, how far back do we go for traditional metrics? 80s? I don't know. Anyway, I don't know. Right. They've, they, they've certainly been gone for a long time. But but while I have you, there was one other milestone that we wrote about this week from New York, and that was that uh, Citigroup, um, which as we, you and I remember covering during the uh, crisis and and looking back on their history, they never ever seemed to miss any crisis, even a minor crisis, you know, anywhere in the world, you knew Citigroup got stuck in it somewhere. But actually, they've done pretty well. The market cap surpassed that of, wait for it, Wells Fargo, which forever traded on a multiple. Um, but I guess this just shows how far the, the, the mighty uh, Wells Fargo has fallen. That's right. I mean, you think back to, to after the crisis, Wells Fargo was uh, seemed to be the golden child. You know, it, it was it was buying was it, it you know, bought up a couple of banks. Right. Uh, it, it did really well. It was uh, talking so much about how its cross selling was fantastic. And then, of course, in 2016, we get uh, the news. Well, we'd sort of seen it already, but then it really hit that they've been that uh, its retail bankers have created millions of fake accounts to try and boost sales numbers, not not to make much money, just to try and hit their numbers. Um, so. Uh, yeah, now Wells Fargo has been on a downward spiral basically ever since. Um, they've lost two CEOs, three if you include the interim CEO they had. Um, and yeah, they've taken some a number of steps to try and rectify things, uh, but you know it's really hard. Also, they, it, it can't grow at the moment. The Fed's put put a cap on it on its asset growth two and a half years ago, year and a half ago, two and a half years ago. COVID nineteen is affecting my brain. I can't remember how long ago, but I think it was two and a half years ago. Right. Um, so they can't grow that, um, and you know revenue is falling. 
Meantime, and the new CEO, Charlie Schaff, is is uh, trying to push things along. He's trying to get that cap lifted. He's trying yeah. to sort out the culture. Meantime, you know, City, I wouldn't say City is doing brilliantly, um, but last year its return on equity did surpass 10% for the first time in a while. Um, uh, the CEO, Mike Corbett, is, is going, uh, you know, nice and steadily along there. Um, yeah, it's, it's not easy going for either of them but Wells Fargo has a couple of other things going against it first of all it's got far lower provisions against losses uh, than most of its peers in the US so it's going to have to set more it's going to have to take those out of earnings in the yeah. future and secondly, it pays far more out in dividends than most of its rivals as well. Most of uh, the big U.S. banks pay about a third and rely on buybacks to give money back to shareholders. Um, Wells Fargo is basically the opposite. So guess what? Mm -hmm. After the Fed stress test last week, um, it became obvious that uh, that Wells Fargo has to basically drop its dividend. Um, so that's even worse uh, for shareholders. So right, right. Uh, early this week, that the, the two switch positions. Only you know they're, they're both just over 100 billion dollars. Not brilliant uh, on a, for either of them, sure. considering that J.P. Morgan is almost three times the size of that with roughly, well, actually they've got a lot more assets at the moment, but not a huge amount more on a, on a sort of long running basis. So they both have work to do, but City is basically the one on the up and Wells Fargo. City overtakes the stagecoach of Wells Fargo <laughs> and Tesla overtakes Toyota, the mighty Toyota. Well, thank you, Anthony. Basically sums it up. Stay healthy out there. Talk you to you too. soon. Yeah. That's our show for this week. Thanks to my guests and hats off to our Uber producer, Freddie Joyner in New York, as well as Amanda Gomez, Karen Kwok, and Jamie Lowe. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Newsroom and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your audio cravings. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition. Stay healthy.